0: Drives a manufacturing giant, a pin up of German economic power, the biggest car maker in the world, to cheat. When the news broke that Volkswagen had been systematically cheating emissions tests, this is the question the world wanted an answer to. Ever since, New York Times journalist Jack Ewing has been piecing together the story that took Volkswagen from Nazi propaganda exercise to global car giant, then into the US and European courts. I talked to Jack about his book on the Volkswagen scandal and what the story says about capitalism more broadly.
1: Thanks, Over your
0: career, you've covered many major stories for The New York Times, including the Eurozone crisis and other corporate scandals. What was it about the VW scandal that made you want to write a book?
1: Well, I think the, 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 the thing that uh, makes it particularly good for a book is just the there's a lot of really interesting characters I mean the history goes back to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and there were some really larger-than-life people that were uh, running Volkswagen over the years uh, Ferdinand Piëch, who was the dominant figure for uh, most of the last 20 years and and then there were some other really good narrative elements for example just the way that uh, this whole scandal was Uncovered by basically a bunch of graduate students at West Virginia University Mm -hmm. uh, with a $70,000 grant uh, and that's all it took to really uh, shake the foundations of this enormous uh, car maker. So it just had a lot of really good uh, story elements. Plus, to be honest, the the other reason I decided to write a book is because Norton came to me and said, do you want to write a book? So (laughs) I said, sure, (laughs) of course.
0: Well, I think the, um, you know, you talk about the big characters and how it was all blown apart by actually a bunch of students um, driving cars around California. And what really struck me about the book is the sort of the suspense of the way you build all those characters and the story together. As you take us through VW's history, there's this sort of sense of inevitability about the eventual deception. Um, Now, you had been covering VW before the scandal broke. Um, With hindsight, do you think there were warning signs that something fundamental was amiss in the company?
1: Well, certainly, uh, you know, I have covered Volkswagen for 20 years off and on and, and I have to say it was clear that Volkswagen had a very different kind of corporate culture than other car makers or most, most other large companies uh, in Germany. I've been in Germany for, for two decades. It was always a very closed company. As a journalist, it was very hard to get interviews with top management to even get the kind of routine information from the communications department. And that's totally different than BMW or Daimler, which are very open and accessible. Uh, So there was always something odd about the company culture. I think that the depth of it surprised me uh, when this whole scandal came out, that they had had cheated on that scale. Uh, Perhaps in hindsight, it was inevitable with what we know about the company now. Uh, Certainly, I don't think anyone saw this lurking until it, it broke out into public view in 2015.
0: I think also, um, I mean, in the book, you're quite critical of the weak enforcement of regulations in Europe. So perhaps government has its own sort of share of the blame to take. Um, But you also talk about the close relationship between regulators and business on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, Do you think there are other similar scandals in other companies, in other industries that are just waiting to be uncovered?
1: Uh, Probably. I mean, uh, of course, I wish as a journalist that I knew (laughs) now what they are. (laughs) I'm sure they're there, the way that people work. I mean, it's a well-known, there's a term for a regulatory capture. It's a well-known phenomenon where regulators get to know the people that they regulate and start to sympathize with them more than the people they're starting to protect. Uh, I think in, um, in Europe, it, it had a lot to do with, one, of the importance of the auto industry to the German economy. I mean, that's the biggest export. Germany's an export-oriented economy, and the biggest product that they export motor vehicles. So the car industry has enormous political clout within Germany and then Germany of course is the most powerful country within the European Union. So if you look back uh, at the last uh, couple of decades time and again the German government went to bad for the uh, German car industry and that led to this very weak regulatory structure that we had as well as incentives for people to buy diesel as you know, diesel is cheaper at the pump in Europe than gasoline, which is not the case in the United States. Um, and that's just because of uh, quasi subsidies. Uh, and that's the work of the auto industry lobbyists. And it's the reason that half the cars on the road in Europe are diesels. And we're seeing a huge backlash against that now.
0: Interesting. I think you bring up the sort of subject of Germany and Germany's dominance within the European Union. And would you say that there's more possibility of corruption in the relationship between the EU and businesses or other vested interests than, you know, for example, in Washington or London? Because obviously these deals are being done in the bowels of a multilingual, supranational institution and are therefore less likely maybe to face the same media scrutiny as those deals done by national governments.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not so sure I would go so far as to say Europe is more corrupt than the United States. (laughs) I mean, certainly (laughs) lobbying by a big Interests and campaign funding in the United States is a huge problem, which you don't have in Europe. The Mm -hmm. campaigns are not as expensive here as they are in the United States, and that's a big source of corruption in the U.S. So I'm not sure I would want to say one system is better than the other, but I think the problem in Europe is that you you have a a weak uh, European government, uh, and really the enforcement lies with the individual countries. And the Volkswagen scandal showed that actually, on paper, the European rules were okay, but some countries had not even incorporated them into their own national legislation. There was zero enforcement mechanism. Some countries had it in their legislation, but they weren't enforcing it. And the EU is now suing a number of its members because of that. But it certainly exposed the structural weaknesses of. European Union. And I guess you could make the argument that when you have a weak structure like, like that, it is easier for lobbyists to come in and, uh, and, and exert a lot of clout.
0: I think it's interesting. Um, you talk in the book about this memo that went round in the US that really sort of marked a shift from chasing middle management to chasing top executives in cases of corporate fraud. And you uh, call one of your chapters by all means necessary, reflecting the approach that VW executives took in you know, pursuing their ambition to try and become the largest car maker in the world. In punishing corporate fraud, do you think that we actually need a similar approach? Has enough been done by the authorities to punish VW executives as well as the company? Um, will capitalism more broadly really only start to command public trust again when dishonest business leaders go to jail rather than just lose their job?
1: Well, certainly, I, I think that you, you can definitely make the case that. This scandal, although the individual actors may have been below the top management level, that top management created the atmosphere, uh, created the uh, sort of the framework for it all to take place, uh, weak of compliance, high demands, um, a lack of a strong ethical foundation. I think you can lay all of that at management's door, even if it's very difficult to identify explicit acts that were carried out by members of top management, and that is something that we don't really have a legal legal framework in the United States or in Europe to deal with. Uh, there is real no there are real n- no real consequences for top management in something like this. And uh, you know, in Volkswagen, they didn't even really lose their jobs. I mean, the, the chief executive Martin Winterkorn lost a job. Uh, some of the Middle managers lost their jobs, but the management board today is really still insiders, a lot of people who were there in high-ranking positions the whole time this was taking place. So I'm not sure there's really been many consequences at all at at Volkswagen. And uh, I I guess, you know, the uh, Justice Department in the United States, a woman named Sally Yates, who was the Deputy Attorney General, sent out this memo you're referring to saying we've got to go over the top guys. Go after the top guys, but even in the United States, that's that's proven very very difficult. They never really nailed any bankers, even though they nearly destroyed the world economy. Um, at corporations, responsibility tends to be very diffuse, and each person just playing their own little part, probably not even thinking of themselves of themselves as doing anything wrong, and it's it's very hard to identify individual responsibility. And, and I think that is something that the justice system in both sides of the Atlantic needs to deal with.
0: Do you think there's also a sort of a bit of a sort of corporate issue in terms of corporate governance structures? I know you certainly talk about the lack of them at VW, um, but do you think there's anything companies can do to strengthen those to try and, you know, pinpoint responsibility to enable justice system to deal fairly with corporate fraud?
1: Yeah, well, I think that you do need uh, outside scrutiny. And that's, uh, I think, missing at a lot of companies uh, where the boards are pretty much uh, people who are close to the top management. There's not enough checks and balances, I think, in a lot of corporations. At, at, that was a particular problem at Volkswagen because it's very unique in that you know, at all big German companies that are publicly traded, the workers have half the seats on the supervisory board, which is the oversight uh, organization at the, at the company. And... Uh, the shareholder, the chairman, who represents shareholders, has a tie-breaking vote. So you already have this balance of power, which can be often be very positive. Mm. Um, at Volkswagen, the unique thing about it was that the state of Lower Saxony, where Volkswagen is located, owns 20 percent of the shares and had another two seats on the supervisory board. And they almost always side with labor because their voters are Volkswagen workers. And so. There you didn't have even a balance of power. Basically, workers control the company. And workers never really tried to influence individual policy. I wouldn't blame the workers specifically for the illegal activity, but uh, the top management at Volkswagen, the way they ran things, was just to sort of keep labor on their side and then they could do whatever they wanted. And the supervisory board has really one person who's not uh, uh, either a member of the Porsche family uh, or a uh, representative of the Porsche family, or Qatar, which owns a big stake, or the state of Lower Saxony or workers. There's really no outsider sort of saying, well, wait a minute, this is how the rest of the world sees this.
0: Interesting. And um, the sort of German model of having worker representation on boards, perhaps to a greater degree than you find in you know, I guess the less sort of the US and the UK has less of a sort of stakeholder capitalism than perhaps the European continent. Um, but the German breed of capitalism is often seen as superior to the sort of more short termist model of the US or the UK. Um, you talk in the book about VW's success becoming sort of synonymous with German economic power. Do you think that this scandal will have a lasting impact on Germany's economic brand?
1: I think that's a big risk, yeah, because Volkswagen is sort of one of the signature companies mm-hmm. Uh, and now it looks like basically all the automakers were not cheating quite as blatantly as Volkswagen, but they were all cheating at some level. And really, the whole German business model is based on the idea that we are superior engineers, we make the best cars in the world, and yeah, they're expensive, but they're worth it. And there's a sort of a premium there that uh, most other car makers don't get. And that's very much a psychological thing among the buyers. And if they lose that, that's that's a big problem because their costs do tend to be higher than uh, other companies. I mean, Volkswagen is nowhere near as efficient as Toyota, even though it competes in the same uh, price class. So yeah, that's, that's a risk. I, I don't think we've seen it happening yet, but I think it's something if I were a German, I'd be pretty worried about.
0: You seem quite skeptical in your epilogue about whether VW will change enough to recover from this scandal. I mean, you've touched a little bit on Perhaps the long-term consequences for Germany in your previous answer. But what do you think business and consumers can learn from VW's story? You know, to try and stop this from happening again, or you know, to take lessons from it and use it to improve capitalism and change sort of the systems of regulation for the better?
1: Well, one reason this happened is there's a perception in the car industry, not just at Volkswagen, that consumers don't care about emissions. Mm. Nobody goes into the dealer and says, oh, I want a car with low nitrogen oxides. You know, they say, I want I want a nice sound system. You know, I want power and everything. And so the car industry attitude, and again, this was by no means limited to Volkswagen, is emissions is kind of a burden. It's an expense that we don't uh, earn any profit from. So there's a strong incentive to put as little into it as possible. So as a consumer, uh, what you could do is when you go to buy a car, say, you know, what, what are the emissions? And I want to know for real, don't just ask the dealer, uh, check with, it's very easy to find on the internet, Mm. how much of uh, nitrogen oxide or other pollutants a car is putting out and and factor that into your buying decision and let the dealer know that that's part of your buying decision. And by the way, you can't totally trust the labeling that uh, you see on the um, cars about how environmental they are because uh, again, thanks to German lobbying. Uh, this is uh, prorated according to the size of the car. So you can have a huge car, that, uh, a huge uh, four-wheel drive SUV, That then uh, the best thing is actually to buy a, a smaller car, a fuel-efficient car. And that's another thing. Right now in the United States, everybody's buying uh, SUVs because gas is cheap. And you can't really blame the car companies for selling them what uh, people want.
0: Fair enough thank you very much for your time um thank you for joining me and I urge everybody to read the book. It's an absolutely fascinating story that charts Volkswagen's rise from you know the days of Hitler all the way through to the point at which this this scandal broke um so it's it's a really it's a really good read. um you learn a lot about the history of the company, you know the key players involved, and also actually what they were doing to in order to cheat the emissions so it reads a little bit like a political thriller but you learn a lot as well thank you very much jack that was jack ewing talking to me about his book faster higher father the inside story of the volkswagen scandal